that uh, not only am I glad to be here, but also I, I come to you today with a, a lot of fear, some trepidation, a little bit of anxiety, because when it comes to the issue and the topic of dating and relationships, there's probably one verse in the Bible that says it best. Judges 17.6 Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And when you begin to address a topic such as we're going to begin to address this morning, it can be a volatile issue. I mean, in the areas of doctrine where most of us are immovable, but when it comes to the opposite sex, most of us have our own opinion, our own views, our own standards, our own rules, our idea of what's right and what's best as well as what's wrong and not best. And as a result, because there hasn't really been a whole lot of clear direction concerning this area of our lives, most of us here this morning, to some degree and in some way, have ended up being hurt, defrauded, pained, wronged. We've ended up bitter, angry, depressed from some form of dating or some form of relationship. And just to put things in perspective, I want you to be honest just for a moment. How many of you have been at one point in your life hurt, defrauded, pained, wrong, bitter, or angry at some form in some way with a dealing with the opposite sex? Would you please raise your hand and put it up? Okay. Then let me ask you another question. Are defraud, anger, bitterness, guilt, regret, selfishness, are they the fruit of the spirit or the fruit of the flesh? Obviously, the flesh. Which tells all of us that most of us at some point are doing something wrong. There's something wrong with the way that we're dealing with the opposite sex, what we think God would expect of us in our dealings with the opposite sex, our expectations, how we're dating. And what I want to do today and, and Wednesday is to examine the issue of dating and relationships from God's Word. And I want to tell you up front, I'm not an expert. Let me say that again. I am not an expert. Uh, given enough time, and if you catch me in a corner, I'll tell you my dating disasters. They were many. Some that I look back upon still, and I've been married now for seven years, still, you think back on it, and the only response that can issue forth from your heart is a hearty, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. And we're not going to discuss in this short little series of two sessions together every exception and every what-if possibility. But what I would like to do is just to take a look at some general principles because I don't believe that God has left us to guess. Um, his book is sufficient and therefore there's got to be some principles in which we can hang our hat on concerning the issue of dating and relationships. And again, I know I'm addressing a volatile topic where everyone has their own opinion and I know that as a result of our time together, I will be mocked. What I share will be belittled, put down. But I, I want you to know that in spite of that, it doesn't kind of keep me from saying what I need to say, only in the fact that I know that you're faced, most of you, with the second most important decision in your entire life, and that will be the choice of your spouse. 
And everything that leads to a proper choice will be determined the way that you develop your dating and relationships. And so this area of life is crucial. It's not just a social issue, it's a spiritual issue. And one that will determine how you're used of God and how effective you are for His kingdom. Because all of us know of couples who seemingly had great promise, but because one or the other was not motivated, not committed to the Lord the way they should have been, their ministry was wiped out, or belittled, or basically insignificant. So this is a crucial area. And what I want to do is I want to kind of start off by asking and answering some general questions on dating, and then I want to expose some dangers that the Word of God exposes in the area of dating and relationships, and then finally to talk about some biblical direction that would give us some positive principles in which to pursue. Now, we won't get to the second two in depth today, but we will cover those next time. But let's start with, first of all, some general questions about dating. First of all, what is dating? What is dating? Now, we ought to know what we're talking about when we address the issue. And the best answer that I could come up with is a planned contact with someone of the opposite sex. A planned contact with someone of the opposite sex, usually in a social setting for a social goal, usually. Now, does that mean that when you meet in the library with a gal to study that you're on a date? Well, it all depends on how much studying you get done. Uh, but for the most part, it's usually for the specific purpose of getting to know another individual of the opposite sex. Second question, is dating normal or abnormal? For the men of the master's college, probably abnormal. Sorry, guys. And there's some frustrated young ladies in our midst. Now, someone's dating. Somehow, someone's dating. At our church, there are three to four couples that are married every weekend. So someone's doing some dating. Yeah, that is unbelievable. <clears throat> but I wanted to ask the question, why isn't there more dating? And maybe to encourage you gals, or at least help you to understand, here are some possible solutions. First of all, because most Christian men who really want to do what God wants them to do have a high view of marriage. And they understand that marriage is a commitment for life. And so when they approach the area of dating and relationships, it's difficult for them to treat it as a social occasion. That's tough. The second reason why there might, be, might, might not be more dating is that most of the guys have rejected the world standard for social life. Now the world standard is, of course, get all you can get. Selfishly play with that individual of the opposite sex to draw in all the ego and other things that you can possibly draw. And most of the men that I know that are in our presence this morning have rejected that and if they don't approach dating that way, and if they're not selfish, then the conclusion that many of us draw, some of the gals draw, is that, well, if they're not selfish and trying to get what all they get, then they must be serious. And guys struggle with the fact that just because they're kind, polite, um, giving of themselves, maybe even loving, selflessly, and that they're very kind, and they treat you like a lady, that he must be serious and ready for marriage. And really, all he's trying to do is just be a Christian. And that's, that's a tough issue. Thirdly, the third reason why there's not more dating is that when someone does date, we put them under incredible pressure. 
Now you know what kind of pressure that is. We've got them married before they finish their miniature golf. That's a difficult pressure. I mean, you know, or, or after you have gone out with a gal, ten people on this campus, and I know this is true because this happened, come up and ask you, how did it go, and you don't even know who they are. I mean, living on this campus, and there's some wonderful advantages to being here at the Master's College, and I'm not belittling that at all, but living on this campus puts you in a fishbowl. And everybody's watching, and so if you go across the street with someone of the opposite sex, they got you married before you got to the other side. And that's a pressure that we all live with. I think you can identify. The third question, shouldn't amen stuff like that, guys. The girls get funny about that. The third question is, is dating acceptable in our society? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. But is it biblical? And the answer to that is yes and no, or no and yes, depending on how and depending on why you date. What you do during dating and why you do what you do will determine whether it's biblical or not. Not so much that the system is acceptable and we can take the world's dating system and somehow shove it in the Bible and make it work. See, if you were living in the first century, more often than not, mom and dad would arrange everything. You'd be sitting at home studying for your Hebrew exam, studying really hard so you can get straight alphas at Jerusalem Tech. And dad would come home and he said, I have an announcement to make. He says, you're engaged today. And you'd be going, oh, great. Who is she? And basically, he'd tell you that he has worked out an arrangement that you're going to marry someone else. And that's why when you read your Bibles, it's basically silent concerning the issues of dating, courtship, and engagement. Because mom and dad did it all. And all you had to do, are you ready? All you had to do was submit. Sound scary? Well, when you think about it, there are some benefits. There's no defraud. There's no guesswork, uh, no pain, no wondering if this is God's will. It's already been decided. Sound good? It doesn't sound like you're too interested. So the fourth question is, how do you choose a date? How do you choose a date? Let me give you a grocery list. Just some helpful hints out of the scripture that would basically help you to orient your thinking to what God would expect of you to be thinking through. I mean, there's a lot of things that we could go through, but let me give you some that maybe aren't addressed as often as they should be. First of all, on the basis of reputation. On the basis of reputation. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. I'll never forget as a single man... I'd probably come to the point where I, w I thought that I was really ready for marriage. And uh, I'd been hearing about this girl named Jean for a year and a half. And the interesting thing was that a whole bunch of principles came into play because the older men that I respected who were already married kept talking to me about this gal. But they weren't really talking to me. They were talking to my roommate who was interested in this gal named Jean. And they were trying to talk him into being interested in her because she was such a godly woman. 
And they talked about all her attributes and how loving she was and how gracious she was and how giving she was and how spiritual she was and how she knew the Bible and how she walked according to God's plan and she was obedient and how service-oriented she was and how ministry-oriented she was and she understood how to minister to young people and, and she was great with young kids and I thought, man, this girl must be walked three feet off the ground. I mean, this was the ultimate woman. And they kept trying to convince Bruce, that was his name, all over again, you know, my roommate, about this guy, uh, this gal is incredible, incredible, incredible. He just wasn't interested. Because Bruce loved dirt. He's kind of one of those backpack type guys, you know what I mean, who eats tree bark. And, uh, and, and Gene was not that way. And I love dirt, but I don't love to eat it, like Bruce did. And... Um, Anyway, so they were really opposites so far apart that he just wasn't interested because she was more of a lady than a kind of a backpack outdoorsy type. And all the time they kept talking to him, I was listening. And by the time he finally said to her that they weren't going to pursue a relationship, and they were really good friends and they did it in a godly way, I mean, he looked at me and he said, hey, you know, what about, what about you? And God was in the whole thing and I ended up marrying this gal with this incredible reputation. But you, I want you to know that a reputation is very powerful. Very powerful and very important. Number two, by their look. By their look. Now, notice I didn't say looks. I said their look. Isaiah 3.9 says, The expression of their faces bears witness against them. The Bible speaks of a proud look and a, and a wanton look. They say, what's that? I don't know. I just kind of know when you see it. I don't know if I can describe it. I remember I dated one girl one time. And the whole date, I felt like she was trying out for Charlie's Angels. Any second, you know, they were going to call cut and call a camera and, you know, have a comb out, you know, and all that kind of stuff. She just kept looking a certain way and, and posing, not with her clothing and trying to look seductive, but just the way she looked. And I thought, oh, there's something the matter here. And she was extremely attractive. She had the reputation of having the, you know, the, she was the most attractive girl at Biola. Sorry about that. Boo. Oh. That's all right. I wasn't in God's will, okay? Um, I repented. Um, number three, by their speech, by their speech, Matthew twelve thirty four says, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What a person talks about shows who they are. What a person talks about shows who they are. What, what a person's passion is. When, when the opportunity for a conversation has a choice to turn in one direction or the other, where does it go with this individual? Their speech will tell you about their heart. Very important. Number four, by their clothing. By their clothing. 1 Timothy 2, 9-15 indicates that clothing will reveal a proud heart or an immodest person. Clothing sends a message to other people as to your character. Now note this. It's very important that you note that in your mind and your thinking, your clothing might not be sending a message. And it's important for you to ask, what kind of message am I sending to others? Or what kind of signals are they receiving? This really was brought to my attention when uh, KNX News Radio was giving a report that I asked for and I got in writing. And they had done studies all throughout Southern California and junior high campuses and they surveyed junior high boys as to what kind of clothing, what certain kind of clothing meant with junior high kids. This is in college, but they were junior hires. And basically, junior high guys, when a gal wore extremely tight pants, you know, the kind they paint on, um, 
that that basically told them that they felt that that girl was saying to them that she was ready to go all the way. That was their perception. That was the signal. 85% of junior high boys said that that was the signal that they were receiving. Now that's something important for us to think through, both guys and gals, as to what signals are we sending by the clothing that we wear. And it also will help you to determine where someone was at spiritually. Just not so much that they have to wear sackcloth and ashes and burlap and cover every you know, exposed part of their body and wear a veil and all that kind of stuff, but that what are the choice of clothing that they wear and what are they trying to communicate with that? Lastly, number five, by their companions. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good morals. Who are their friends? And even take it a step further, who do they admire? Who do they admire? Because if you find out, you'll know whether this is one for a Christian to date. But all this isn't really helping us to sort through how to deal with the opposite sex in a biblical manner. So how can we change the trend? If all of us have been burned in some way, how can we reverse that so we could do it God's way? And it doesn't mean that doing it God's way is going to remove hurt or disappointment or unfair situations. But it does mean that you can know that you honor God. It does mean that you can know that you're in God's will. And if that's important to you in the selection of a future spouse, which I believe it should be, then how can we reverse that? Well, let's look at the dangers of dating. And we won't get all the way through this this morning, and we'll finish this up on Wednesday. But what are some of the dangers? And the first one that I'd like to bring to your attention is the sin of defraud. Sin of defraud. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles with you. 1 Thess chapter 4, it's between Genesis and Revelation. It's a very familiar passage of scripture, one that I'm sure you're aware of and has been addressed probably in other talks that you've heard on dating. But Paul is talking to the Thessalonians about their sanctification, how to live a life that's going to please the Lord. And he says this in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, in explaining what kind of life is going to please God, Paul explains basically three things in the area of guy-girl relationships. First, that Christians, and again, this is just for us who call ourselves Christians, are to abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that's a general word when he uses that in verse 3. Sexual immorality, sexual sin, is a general word and basically refers to anything from lust to premarital sex. And he's saying in Geiger relationships, anything from lust to premarital sex is to be avoided at all costs if you're going to please the Lord in all things. Secondly, he says God is exhorting us, basically in verses 4 and 5, that our life before marriage must be pure. That God's best is to enter marriage into a pure and undefiled state and then to stay that way. 
That's basically what he's saying. And then thirdly, he says, if we want to please God and stay in his will, then we are not to wrong our fellow Christians in the area of defraud. Now, what's defraud? Basically, to defraud means this, to take what is not yours to take, to say what is not yours to say, to promise what is not yours to promise, to give what is not yours to give. Now, some of you are already way ahead of me. Basically, what it means is anything that belongs to a future husband or future wife, but is pursued by or taken by another who is not a spouse or may not be a spouse, is to defraud. A selfish sin against God and man. Now, some of you may not like this, and this is where I run into problems, but a general rule of dating is, when you're dealing with someone of the opposite sex, is to treat them as someone else's wife or someone else's, else's husband. Treat them as someone else's wife or someone else's husband. And if you were to ever meet their future wife or their future husband, don't do anything that you would be ashamed of. To take something that is not yours to take. You know what that means? And let me be practical. Let me try and apply it for you. And if you reject the application, fine. But don't reject the principle. That means to have a pretend marriage. A pretend marriage is a couple who get involved too quick, too soon, real fast. They, they say they've been friends, but they really don't know each other that well. And all of a sudden they jump into a real intimate relationship and they disappear from all their friends. You know people like that? They just disappear. And basically they spend all their time together and when it all breaks down to it, they spend more time together than a husband and wife would spend together. And basically, apart from living together, and maybe having sex, they have a pretend marriage. And what you're doing is you're taking something that doesn't belong to you. It's to manipulate someone into liking you. That's defraud. To manipulate them into liking you. To be possessive over a guy or gal is to defraud them. To claim a guy or gal as your territory is to defraud them. That's one that girls are very good at. You know, hands off, gals. This one's mine. To attract an individual to yourself instead of to Jesus Christ. To raise their expectations of a future relationship. To make demands of a person short of a life that honors Jesus Christ is defraud. It's taking something that is not yours to take. Now, that's not radical stuff. This is just normal Christianity. But we've so moved from God's standard concerning the relationship with the opposite sex that these things seem radical. Now, this sin usually sneaks up at you in three different ways. How do we defraud? How do we raise the expectations of a future relationship even though we can't or won't deliver the, those expectations? Well, basically, one way that we do that is by giving gifts. Uh, you know, the, the expensive gifts, the shooting of the giant wad of cash on the gal. Now, some of you don't have the wad, and so you don't have to stumble in this area. But when you start doing things like that too soon in a relationship, what you're doing is you're making promises. It's almost as if, and guys, I'm, I hope I'm not giving away a trade secret, it's almost as if you owe it to me, gal, because I've purchased you, you know, that kind of thing. And I know that's wrong, but stuff like that goes on. Anytime we manipulate the other person to respond in some way or make it difficult for them to gracefully back out of a relationship or the next date can tend to be defraud. It doesn't always be, but it can tend to be. 
Anytime we give part or all of the gift of physical expression that was meant only for our mate or their mate is to defraud them. What that means is that you should never give anything to make someone like you more, but only give them something to help them love Jesus Christ more. If that sounds boring to you, then maybe you've got a heart problem. One of the most exciting things is going to be doing things God's way. See, there's no verses in the Bible that command us to give you to give things to other people so they'll love you more. But there are about a hundred that command you to give so that people will be more in love with Jesus Christ. And the question I'm trying to press you with, and don't get lost in all the application, the question I want you to deal with is, what are your motives? I mean, you say that you love God as the first priority, He's number one in your life, and yet you're pursuing this boy or girl. Where is your heart? What are you trying to gain? Where is your focus? The second way that we defraud people is with the use or abuse of time. And again, whenever a couple disappears from their contact with others and they lose all their close intimate friends because they have one friend of the opposite sex, they step into the most common form of defraud, which is the too close, too soon scenario. And it usually results in sexual immorality, I'm sorry to say. This is the pretend marriage, and again, it's the couple spends more time than they do with a, than a married couple spends time. And what I want you to do is, is to examine what you can do about this, because this is a common, common problem. What can you do about it? Well, basically, the first solution is, again, to evaluate your motives. Couples who spend too much time together are usually made up of two people who expect the other is going to meet their most intimate personal needs. Think about what I'm saying to you. They expect the other to fill their emptiness and their loneliness. They have a weak relationship with God and they're not letting God be their satisfaction and out of the fullness of that relationship giving to another, but they spend gobs of time with someone of the opposite sex to satisfy their innermost craving, the longing of their heart, and little do they realize that only Jesus Christ can satisfy that need. That goes on all the time. And that means we've bought the lie. The lie that somehow that person, that individual, that person of the opposite sex is going to satisfy my heart when they can't do that even in marriage. James Dobson does a lot of high school assemblies and he has a little trick that he pulls on high school students. What he does is he makes a statement, he kind of builds to a crescendo and then he makes the statement. He says, you high school students, and he's talking to a secular audience, he says, you don't have sex to have fun. And everybody just mocks and laughs and they go, sure, and they laugh at him and they mock the whole situation. And then he follows it up with an incredible statement. He says, you know what? Because of poor relationship with your parents, because of other poor relationships, basically what you're crying out for is not fun. You just want intimacy. And the whole assembly, silence. Because they know it's true. They're having sex for intimacy. To crave the most inner longing of their soul that can only be satisfied in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He ends up preaching the gospel at these assemblies. But that's the point. The point is, when you rush away with a gal and hide, when you rush away with a guy and hide and just spend all your time together, what are you trying to get from that individual? Most often than not, you're trying to have them, have them satisfy the inner longing of your heart and your soul and have them solve your problem of intimacy which can only be satisfied in Christ. Well, the third area that we defraud is the area of making promises. 
This is the guy who talks about how many kids he wants on the first date. This is the person who said I love you to every date they've had. This is the gal who thinks that flirting is harmless. And basically the answer to this is don't promise anything until you can promise everything. As a general rule, sure there are exceptions to all these things, but as a general rule, don't promise anything until you can promise everything. Don't promise a gal or a guy the hope of a future relationship when you do not know God's will in that area. It has not been confirmed in your own heart or in other people who are watching you and holding you accountable. Never give a verbal promise of a future relationship unless you're ready to propose. And only if you respond to that will you willfully avoid defrauding. That's hard to deal with. I know that. I, I grade against that myself and yet I know what happens when you do the other. If you disregard God's warning about defraud, by the way, it, understand that God said that He's going to avenge the defrauded in this passage. Take a look at it. He says that you're called to be a giver, not a taker. The Christian's goal is not to see what you can get from someone emotionally or physically, but do what pleases Jesus Christ. And if you reject this, you're rejecting God, not Chris Mueller, not your own opinion. You're rejecting God. Defraud is a serious issue. It is. And if you're dating a relationship is to be like Jesus Christ and follow His Word, you're going to have to believe His Word no matter what it takes. And it means you're going to be different. The second danger, and we'll close with this one this morning, is the danger of deceit. The danger of deceit. I want you to listen to Colossians 3.9, even though you know it. It says, Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now, what he's doing here is he's giving us a continual command. It's in the present tense. And he's saying our whole way of life is to be absent from the sin of deceit. Our whole way of life. We've got to remember that a lie is any misrepresentation of truth. It's not just saying the words, but it's also the tone of your voice. The gesture can mislead someone as well. And any time you intend to mislead someone else for any reason, you are lying and you are cooperating with the enemy, the devil, who is the father of lies. Unfortunately, this goes on all the time in dating. I mean, just think about it. And I, I hate to do this, but think about the first date. Think about anybody's first date. I mean, you both dress with extreme carefulness. You go to a carefully selected place. You talk only about certain things, carefully avoiding certain subjects. You phrase words in just the right way. You take extra care as to how you act. You get the doors for once. You don't burp out loud. You don't pick your nose. And you don't take advantage of a big juicy yawn. Basically, on the first date, you're trying really hard not to be yourself. Think about it. And the sin of deceit, though, goes much deeper than just the first date. Let me give you some examples. One lie is the lie of, of the love at first sight. Now, Christians are not exempt from this. this. I call this romantic roulette. You spin the chamber and you just land on somebody and say, that's the one. When you have no confirmation at all. I mean, it's the idea that you can meet an individual and know instantly after one date or one contact or just a few that he or she is the one. You know, because her name is the same name as your favorite childhood toy, Tonka, you know, or something. <laughs> or, or he's the, the name of your favorite childhood cartoon, Wiley Coyote. Um, <sighs> 
Sorry, Wiley. <laughs> Another form of lying is the excuses that gals use to tell guys that they can't go out. I, I have to be real honest with you. I've heard dating talks that tell you to lie. And that puts you into situation ethics. Is it ever right to lie? The answer has to be no. Part of the problem comes from the fact that there are two kinds of no. And in our language, you can't distinguish between them. They just sound like no. But there is a difference. And one of the secrets is to learn how to determine the difference between no for now and no for good. Right, guys? She can say no, but she may mean no for now, and I'd really like you to take me out, but I can't do it now. Or no for good, get away. Now, no for now sounds like this. If you're going to ask her out to Chinese dinner, no for now sounds like this. I have plans that night, but it sure sounds good. No, I have class Thursday, but how about Saturday? I don't like Chinese food, but ask me again when you feel like steak. Um... <laughs> No for good, no for good sounds like this. Now, you've got to be careful and watch carefully. It's a sweet smile accompanied by a shake of the head and a quiet no. Okay? Yeah, you've heard it before, too. I... Um, no for good also sounds like maybe some other time with kind of a big sigh afterwards, meaning that she wishes it would have been a someone else. Or, I have plans that night, period, nothing else said. Or, I hate Chinese food, period, no other explanation. <laughs> or, no for good sounds like this, sure, just ask my boyfriend. Um, <laughs> but what is the best way to say no and not lie? Well, it's best not to say, I have a boyfriend, unless you really do. Or, I have plans that evening, because he'll probably take you literally and ask you out again. Or maybe some other time, which just prolongs the agony. Please don't say, are you kidding? You? Um, <laughs> please, please avoid suggesting, why don't you ask out Julie? And don't say, I don't like Chinese food. That's just an evasion. I think the best way to do it, gals, is to say this. No, thank you. That's it. Just say the truth. And if the guy's dumb enough to ask you why, then kindly tell him the truth. <laughs> but you've got to be honest. Now, look, some of you go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a good answer. The choice you gals must face is to hurt him now or hurt him later. That's the only choice you have. When a guy puts his ego on the line, and he does every time he asks someone out, when he puts that on the line, you have a choice. You're either going to hurt him now or hurt him later, if you don't want to go out with him. If you hurt him now, you tell him the truth, and he'll respect you later. Guaranteed. He will, if he's a Christian, he will respect you later. If you lie, and then he gets, it, gets the message over the long haul or through someone else, he'll resent you. And you'll end up defrauding him, lying to him, causing sin in the body of Christ. You don't want to do that as a Christian. The issue is, you hurt him now, you hurt him later. One honors God, one does not. The choice is yours. I think you can also fall into the pit of deceit when we misread the interests of others. I mean, so many times some of the greatest hurt is on the basis of fanciful romantic expectations. I mean, the guy is interested in ministry and the gal's interested in matrimony. Been there? 
The gal is interested in being friends and the guy is interested in a future. The guy is interested in equipping the sister and the gal is interested in engaging the brother. The gal just wants to be kind and the guy is looking to make a killing. Uh, we got to take the responsibility of protecting our brothers and sisters from deceit in any form, even their expectations. Now some of you are saying, wait a minute, I never expected to lead that person on. But it's time for us to begin to recognize that we need to work very hard and diligently if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ to keep them from wrong expectations. You're saying, hey, that's their problem. No, it isn't. Because as soon as you say it's their problem, then you're saying that the Good Samaritan doesn't count. That being our brother's keeper doesn't count. That bearing one another's burdens doesn't count. See, we are to work very hard at helping others to not have high expectations. Or to misread our actions. We need to work at that. Now, we all know that there are people who can read something into everything. You know, a guy says hi and she says, he loves me. <laughs> but we still must help others not to misread our, the intentions or our interests. I think the final way of deceit and perhaps the most cruel is the classic guy-girl breakup. And I hope that I don't hurt you too much by exposing this as some of us have been involved in this. But basically, you get into a relationship with a guy or with a gal, probably too quick, too soon, too fast. And you probably functioned on your emotions and you really didn't use your head. And all of a sudden you realize that this is not a good relationship. For whatever reason, could be too physically involved or you all of a sudden you realize that this is not the gal for you or not the guy for you. They may or may not feel the same way. You see that God isn't in it. Neither of you are really growing in Christ the way you should be. And instead of owning up to your mistake, that you went too soon and too fast, admitting that you made a mistake and asking for forgiveness, what you do is you treat the other individual like dirt, like trash. Guys, we're very good at this. This is our weakness. We get cruel, standoffish. We stop communicating until finally they break up with us. Why? So we don't have to admit our mistake. And all that is is pride. And it's the one of the worst forms of lying that you can ever do to someone of the opposite sex. Well, when we get together next time, we'll finish these dangers... But I want to conclude with something that's kind of sobering. Some of you are saying, well, do I really need this? And I, I love the Master's College, and I especially love some of the students that I've gotten to know personally. And some of the best here are struggling with the area of Geiger relationships. It'd be almost wonderful if somehow we could erase all the past and invent a whole new system that would function just here. A little taste of Eden. But also some of the worst, some of those who are allowing their glands to dictate their behavior. Two weeks ago, I, a friend of mine came up to me on Sunday morning and he was asking me if I'd been out to the college late. And I said, well, I was coming out to do this series. And he said, boy, isn't it interesting? My brother-in-law, who's a police officer, pulled over, uh, actually pulled over to the side of the road and saw an abandoned car, what he thought was an abandoned car, and shined his flashlight in. And there was a couple of students from the master's college going all the way. And he wouldn't tell me who it was, and he didn't tell my friend who it was, but it's going on here. And the police officer, of course, didn't tell his brother who it was as well. And then uh, two days later, Tuesday, I got a phone call 
from a gal who's pregnant and her boyfriend goes to the school. And somehow, some way, some of us are being sucked into the world system. And even though we'd say, I'd never do that, we need to begin to form the convictions in our life that are going to help us to walk by a different standard. And it's my pray, prayer as a result of today and, and Wednesday. You begin to rethink this issue and allow God's principles to begin to permeate practically in your life concerning the opposite sex. Let's pray together.